that, Shumnas? You're listening to 33.3 FM. And this episode, we're going to be talking about uh, Land Down <laughs> Under, my absolutely horrible accent didn't tip it off. What, what, what did you even say, Chomnas? What, what was that? Chomna? What? I've never heard of that. Um, to give a bit of context here, listeners, uh, we actually went over this. We did a rehearsal episode uh, a couple weeks back. Uh, we're going to call it a rehearsal episode because what actually happened was that I lost the recording. This is just like the Thormavor incident over again. Yeah, we were cleaning up after that one for a while. Well, regardless, uh, we have also brought a guest onto the show. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself, sir? Hi, everybody. Um, my name's Ben. I've been writing a blog for Unknown Armies for almost a year now. I'm actually currently on break. That'll start up again soon. Um, yeah, that's pretty much my entire involvement. And much like uh, my co-host, Tormson, is a Aussie native. So we figured we'd bring him on the show, one, because he's an experienced Duke, and I'm sure he's very tuned in to all the things going on in the underground, uh, in the land down under. And we're not supposed to say Duke anymore, because apparently people get offended by Duke. I think that the Zoomers are starting to say Duke and Lord, Lord again, so it's fine. So you Dukes and Duchesses? Uh, Ben's has been flown around for a while now, and we figured he'd be as good a guy as any to talk with Torm here about what's been going on in the underground in Australia for the past while. Uh, I, if that opener didn't give you that hint already, know pretty much nothing about Australia. I'm going to be deferring this episode to the two experts for the most part. So... Gentlemen, what exactly has been flown around in the astral planes and among Australia for the past while? Enlighten me. Well, historically, Australia has been much maligned in the occult underground elsewhere. Um, the sleepers believed it was mystically barren. Um, there's lots of talk about it mostly being other spaces, but that's kind of a misnomer. Um, one of the interesting things about Australia as a setting uh, for Ananamis is I think that it is probably the culture which is the most similar to the US culture, more so than Britain, because Britain has like a long history and lots of weird class weirdness, while Australia... More so than Canada, even? Well, well, okay, Canada, Canada may be closer, yes. But Canada is kind of like, it's not, well, we'll get a Canadian on. We'll talk about Canadian, Canada, um, unknown armies. We'll talk about Canada as well at a later date. Yeah, those two countries um, in, at a later date. Uh, but in terms of non-North American English-speaking countries, uh, Australia is probably the closest in terms of um, culturally um, to the US and also having that mix of mundanity and weirdness that Anunami's thrives on. Would you agree with that assessment, Ben? Uh, yeah. One of the um, major factors in Australian culture is the fact that we import most of it. Yeah, from what I've gathered, like most of Australia, like TV and stuff, is just imported straight from the UK and the US, right? Yeah, we produce 
comparatively very little um, as far as media is concerned. What you'll find is a lot of people with that sort of bent will go elsewhere to do that. We do have the occasional interesting independent film that comes out. There was the whole Ozploitation thing of weird horror movies set out in the outback, um, things like that. Um, but in general, yeah, most of the time people leave. Australia has this cultural thing known as cultural cringe, um, where many people sort of we have like an ingrained inferiority complex, but also at a that comes out in different ways. That comes in one, in one way it comes out as people sort of dismissing stuff that's made from Australia. And another way is people like gripping onto it and being like, we don't need anything else. And it's 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 a weird sort of thing. And it does come from the fact that we import so much of our culture from the UK and the US. Um, I think it's almost 50-50 when I was growing up in terms of stuff I watched on TV. I watched a lot of like British shows and also American shows. Um, and that doesn't yeah, absolutely. Even our government is like a mixture of the British system and the American system. It's called like our Washminster because it takes elements of both. So far as how this sort of cultural blend uh, influences your guys' um, local cult underground, yeah, and lend me on that. What exactly is going on as far as that goes? You brought up other spaces. Um, I know there's some weirdness involving the sleepers. They do, are there just not sleepers around in Australia? What's going on there? Oh, yeah, they're absolutely around. Uh, the thing about other spaces, which ties back into this point, is that's not entirely unfair. Like, I don't have the same version that Thompson expressed towards that. And I think a big part of it is the isolation in Australia. Um, we are one of the most geographically isolated countries on earth. And it's not just that. Something like 98% of our population lives in 2% of the land. We're all clustered around the edges, um, mostly along the East Coast. We've got Darwin up top and then Perth uh, over in West uh, Australia. Yeah, you have this huge like outback region. Canada has a similar situation where they're all kind of clustered geographically near the you know, U.S.-Canadian border. And there's just these huge swaths of land that barely anyone lives on. Both those countries have plenty of stuff going on and they're called underground. So you think it's just a function of the local isolation? One theory I have is that because like uh, modernized Western style uh, Australian culture is clinging to the coastlines, it does occupy such a small part of Australia. This kind of renders to like the the modern Australian psyche, it renders most of the Australian landscape as liminal space. And other spaces often interact with liminal space quite well, and they grow out of liminal space. So that might be why they've popped up so much or become so accessible in Australia, because that weird feeling of passing through is how you access other spaces that might be hidden in an area that's like a city or whatnot. Yeah. yeah, you brought this up before, kind of, uh, during our deep dive into Mac attacks. 
uh, talking about unique situation in Australia might be leading to Mac attacks using the ley lines there. Not being able to use the ley lines in the same way because the Australian version of ley lines would be song lines and they go through such empty areas that it would be impractical to put a McDonald's out there. So they wouldn't be able to use it in the same way that Mac attacks in the US uses the interstate highway system. So this very sparsely populated area, more towards the interior, would probably lend itself pretty well to anyone getting up to some weirdness and wanting to keep away from prying eyes, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, Australia has more micronations than any other place on Earth. Uh, elaborate. So places like, uh, have you ever heard of Sealand? No, I have not. It's not Australian, but that's that's one of the most famous examples of a micronation. It's sort of this extraterritoriality that um, we've got, I think Wikipedia lists something like nearly a dozen that have existed over the years. So if you're hoping to start your own micronation with the rest of your cult, then Australia is a pretty good place to do it from the sound of things. Well, it certainly seems to be a popular pastime. They don't tend to sort of have the militancy that you'd see with uh, like sovereign citizen enclaves in the U.S., um, none of them have been quite as iconic as Sealand, but... Is there even really that sort of culture in Australia as much? Not really. Um, we do have a bit of it. I've worked in courthouses where we've had uh, sovereign citizens come through, and, uh, yeah, they don't tend to be... They tend to be taken about as seriously as you expect. Like, do you guys even have something analogous to the Second Amendment that they could then use as a basis? Nope. One of the things that I think differentiates... Australia from the US um, as a setting is that violence is very different. Um, we do still have firearms. It's nowhere near as common or enshrined. Um, we don't have any sort of enshrined right to self-defense with a firearm. It's all restricted based on sporting and uh, hunting use. And there are strict storage requirements. That's not to say that there aren't um, criminal organizations and people who possess firearms illegally. It just doesn't happen quite as much. Yeah, what exactly is organized crime like in Australia? I'd figure there wouldn't be as much as in the United States. Not as much, probably, but it still exists. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's mostly drugs. We have a lot of methamphetamine produced in Australia for similar reasons. It's produced in like like isolated areas of the US. It's just it's easy to put a meth lab out in the middle of nowhere, and that makes Australia fairly. Uh, good for methamphetamine production. Well, it's not even out in the middle of nowhere, just a rural town somewhere, just slightly off the beaten path. Yes, yeah. Things like cocaine are way more expensive. Uh, yeah, most of it's just meth and weed, but stuff that comes in, like you'll get stuff coming in uh, from overseas and that gets seized occasionally. Uh, but that's that'll be the stuff that um, they'll be dealing with. So it seems like sort of the outback areas, the where most of the weirdness is likely going to be happening, right? Like, what else? Uh, I mean, you know, the easy thing to go to is something like uh, Ayers Rock and all those very old landmarks. Ayers Rock is interesting because it's both a Cleomantic site and an Aboriginal sacred site, and it has popped up in the occult mainstream. Some problems like during the... Uh, the Great Harmonic Convergence, 987, yeah. Um, the Harmonic Convergence was this 
synchronized global peace meditation that occurred during an alignment of the planets. Um, so bunches of hippies, they went to Mount Shasta, they went to Stonehenge, and they went to Uluru, Ma'ez Rock. Um, but at the time, the Aborigines were like, fuck off, hippies. This is like, in a similar way that... Um, Native Americans get annoyed by hippies coming to um, like certain mounds and things like that, and like bringing their own like interpretation of the, a place into it. Um, and it was an interesting articles I read. The police, for one of the first times in Australian history, were on the Aborigines side in this case and like chasing off the hippies, which I thought was entertaining. Um, and that's an interesting way because I would say that that's not a that's not a clash between the cult underground and the cult mainstream. That's like pre-modern, like um, sacred, religious, um, so more ritual magic area versus occult mainstream hippiedom, which would be an interesting setting for some occult underground people to get involved with. And I do wonder who, if anyone, um, is harvesting from Uluru as a Cleomantic site and whether or not they have, like, if there is an Aboriginal who is, if the Aboriginals who administer the, stri the site, if there is people behind them, like, um, occult woke people within Aboriginal government who are like, okay, we're going to keep this to ourselves and not let someone harvest it. Because recently they have stopped people from climbing up on it because it is a sacred site and people were just, like, tramp trampling up there. And there was a hilarious thing where this racist politician named Pauline Hansen like went up there to like prove a point and then she got scared and couldn't come down and it was it was quite hilarious um yeah I, the other alternative interpretation is that it could be cleomantically considered the equivalent of free parking just because it's so far away from everybody else that nobody goes there so you've got cleomancers who look around and they're like well this is a barren landscape. There's one historical landmark for hundreds of miles. I'm going to go elsewhere. So it could just be sitting there. Perhaps, but it is, it's well, it's well known worldwide. Um, so it still would get the Cleomantic residence. Um, and people do go out there. It's relatively cheap to go there versus anywhere else in the middle of Australia in terms of being a tourist. So I could easily see some Cleomancer being like, I'll just go out there and see if there's a charge out there. But there probably is yep. already a Cleomancer in uh, um, Alice Springs who's like, no, 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 this is, we control this. What I think would be uh, just as interesting is if it had been left for too long and something else had decided to batten itself on those energies. I mean, there are places like the usual um, way of keeping people away from a particular site, like what happened to the Red Square or. Um, uh, what was it? The Forbidden City in China is you just bind a, a thormophage to it so no one could charge off it. So I could easily see someone doing that to Ayers Rock. But that would be, be maybe too obvious. Something that old, I'd figure, is going to just have a lot of energy surrounding it regardless. Um... And it's been a sacred site to the Aborigines for like tens of thousands of years. And so even though it's well known as a cleomantic site in the modern world and maybe it's got that breadth in terms of knowledge as being as rock in the modern in like our like uh modernized western culture the, the the depth of the 
its sacredness within Aboriginal um, civilization for like 40,000 years, that might trump it somehow. I'm not sure. What exactly is like the sort of significance of Ayers Rock to the Aboriginal cultures uh, that, you know, live around it? Well, it's considered a sacred site. Um, it's got a whole bunch of um, paintings um, in the rock caves and things like that. Um, oh, wait, there's actually caves in there and stuff? Yeah, there's. I haven't actually been out there. Have you been there, Ben? No, I haven't. Anytime I've seen pictures of it, it's just always this big orange rock from a distance. I didn't even know there was sort of anything in there. It's a big-ass rock. Um, it is considered sacred to the Yankunjara people and Panchanjara people because they believe the spirits of ancestral beings continue to reside in these sacred places, making it deeply important to their cultural identity. Um, so this has got some deep history behind it. And it's right next door to uh, one of the only major, and I say that in quotation marks, cities in Australia's interior, Alice Springs. Is Alice Springs mostly famous because it's proximity to Ayers Rock and it kind of has a tourist trap thing going on? Um, I don't know if that's entirely fair. Um, it's also got Pine Gap right next door, um, which is our link to the global surveillance network um, as far as things like the NSA and uh, the Australian, what do we call them? I think they're called the Australian Signals Directorate now. So are they particularly closely involved with um, the NSA? Uh, what, uh, what is uh, the significance of this place? It is, uh, Pine Gap is in the middle of Australia to pick up um, signals, satellite signals in particular, and they put it there. No, not satellite signals, like radio signals from Asia. And they put it in the middle of Australia as opposed to... Um, in the middle of the ocean because it's much more difficult for other countries to intercept um, anything coming in because it's in the middle of a continent as opposed to on a ship. It's much more difficult to eavesdrop with a submarine or whatnot. So it just sounds like the outback is a good place to go to if you're hoping to get as little interference from waves of any sort, you know, radio, psychic, what have you. So just all sorts of groups will get set up out there just because it's the one of the most remote land areas in the world, right? Exactly. Um, now, for as for Alex Springs, like it was, it started off as a settlement because it was um, the location of a repeater station for a tele telegraph line linking Adelaide to Darwin. So going across all across from the north of Australia to the south, and ultimately connecting to Great Britain. And then they found gold nearby, and then people came. You were mentioning how close Australia is to the United States culturally and such. And one of the things that I always thought was kind of interesting was that we both, we think of ourselves as frontier nations, but there was very much people here before us. Oh, yes. That we ended up colonizing the fuck out of. Yep. If you like look at most role play, urban fantasy role playing games, Whenever they mention Australia, it's usually in the context of Dreamtime or something like that. The general vague ideas that people have of what uh, Aboriginal um, spiritual beliefs are, and just kind of pulling from that a bit. 
yeah, we get that sort of a double layered effect of uh, early white wolf exoticism. That's a great way of putting it. Um, and that may be sort of what was being leaned towards a bit with uh, the whole idea of other spaces and that type of thing. But uh, Aboriginal cultures are legitimately very interesting. And oh, yes. They're interesting in ways that aren't necessarily um, as easy to categorize, as Ben put it, uh, white wolf exoticism might put it. Uh, but the, the, the so... way that role-playing game companies did that, um, especially American companies, is it's understandable considering how Australian culture, like white Australian culture, has taken uh, selectively elements of Aboriginal culture as it suited them, like to add, to make Australia look more interesting to the outside world. Like, oh, okay, let's bring out the, the didgeridoo. Let's talk about the dream time. Let's not talk about how we killed them. Let's just talk about the interesting things and ignore all the problems. Yeah, try to sell Yeah, didn't they not even have like control. voting rights? Or... Yes, they have voting rights now, but it took until the 70s. Yeah. <laughs> the 70s? Yeah, the oh. 70s. Yeah, which is they were classified when... as fauna for a while. Yeah, um, incidentally, from the early 1900s to the 1970s, um, we had what is now called the Stolen Generation, in which Aboriginal children were removed from their homes on the basis of race. Um, it was a big push for cultural homogeneity. <clears throat> it was also a push to like deliberately breed them out um the plan was the eugenics plan was to make sure that they integrated into australian culture and married white australians so that a few generations down the road they would just the aboriginality would just sort of fade out into the genetics uh yeah, which is an interesting not... it's very racist but it's like a like the opposite of american racism in some ways where in america you had the whole one drop thing where like one drop of black blood meant you were black and you were treated accordingly. So essentially they're playing with state enforced race mixing. Yeah. yeah. There's a pretty good movie um, that talks about a little bit about this called rabbit proof fence that came out in 2002. That is a good movie. Similar to what uh, the United States has going on. You have with Australia, this um, a colonized culture that, is still very present and it seems like they kind of ultimately dealt with it the same way that the United States dealt with our all the uncomfortable questions that the Native Americans brought up for the government which was basically just shove them somewhere far away from everywhere else so we don't really need to think about them. I don't even think we've done that. When did this program start? You said it went on till the 70s. Early 1900s I think. Not that early like not that early it was late 1900s I think. I got figures here. 1905 to 1967 is the official figure, um, although in some places it was continued until the 1970s. Jesus. Not that long ago. Yeah. I mean, disco was still a thing when it was going on. What's the current relationship between Aboriginal communities and white Australians? Uncomfortable silence from the Australians. Sorry, I was waiting for Thompson to take the bat for that one. Good waiting for me. Oh, God. 
there was a group, um, an organization in Perth, I think it's still operational, um, known as the Noongar Patrol, and they were basically um, Aboriginal cops who dealt with um, Aboriginal specifically. They were kind of... Uh, oh, so it's kind of analogous to the Res Cop type thing. The what? The uh, Reservation Cop. Oh, yeah. Kind of. We don't have reservations officially. Analogous, but yeah. I think we have reserves, don't we? We have something similar, but not the same. Yeah. Um, I mean, we've got the same sort of rural crushing poverty yeah. um, that exists under the reservation systems with, frankly, what is probably less recognition. How far away from the coast are Aboriginal communities usually? Is it like... Oh, they're all over the place. It's not just in the interior. It's on the coast because that's where people would like to live as people. Because I know Canada has this really big problem where their um, native communities are often so remote that just any sort of food and supplies there are pretty much prohibitively expensive for everyone in the communities. I think in many ways, as the, the Canadian uh, First Nations experience is even more analogous to Australia than the US with Native Americans uh, because of that simple, the remoteness. Uh, I find a lot of, like, when I'm reading about um, First Nations experience in Canada, I'm like, this sounds a lot like Australia, especially because our governments are more similar than the US, perhaps. Yeah. Um, the other thing is that if you look at maps where people have tried to demarcate where the different Aboriginal groups existed, um, you'll find that the sections that groups owned in the interior are far larger than the ones on the coastline just because of the food requirements. Um, you needed a lot more land in the inhospitable interior to sustain your family than you did on the coastlines. So if you were to uh, introduce elements like this into a Yu-Gi-Oh game, how would you go about doing it? One thing that I think would be interesting is transformative aspects of culture. Panyatula, um, it's a form of Aboriginal art that I think it's the form of Aboriginal art that most people would be familiar with. Um, it's like a mosaic made up of little paint dots. Have you ever seen anything like that, Frank? I honestly have no idea what you're talking about. Well, um, prior to the 1970s, that was never recorded in permanent form. Um, they were always done in the sand and then cleaned or blown away like a mandala. Um, but at some point during the 1970s, I believe it was a school teacher around the Alice Springs area, um, encouraged some of the locals to start recording them. And yeah, now there's actually a company that's owned by Aboriginal stakeholders that um, proliferates that kind of art. So from a UA perspective, um, you could maybe do a Logomancer. Often Aboriginal artists and Aboriginal artists collectives have to actually be kind of on the ball in terms of protecting um, that sort of art from companies that will just rip it off. I know that was a, there was a German company that got in trouble recently for just stealing Aboriginal uh, designs and just flogging them off on T-shirts and things. So they have to be on the ball because it's something that, like it's like um, the dream catchers and things like that in the US, things will be appropriated and sold by companies and they have to be on the ball um, to prevent, prevent that from happening or at least, no, they can't prevent it from happening. Now that whole um, sand thing is interesting to me because from what you guys are bringing up earlier, 
by the 70s, I would bet that the artists who did this type of work were very conscious of the lack of permanency of this medium and the issues that presented. I'd imagine it would make that sort of thing very easy to wipe out, especially if they were literally kidnapping children from their families. Yeah, because that, that was the plan, was to wipe out the culture um, and break the connection between parents and children and educate the children with Western values, uh, European values. Uh, that was the whole plan. And it it kind of worked because it did create a disconnect and Aboriginal groups have had to like fight to recreate those traditional connections and to preserve like the oral tradition because the oral tradition survived for thousands of years like oral traditions elsewhere in the world and then it was quickly wiped out by colonists one of the other things that i've noticed is that you'll get aboriginal groups who will be in conflict with each other over this lack of history um they'll both lay claim to a specific history or a specific uh, place as theirs even though they both can't be true. I was reading actually about um, the interaction. I was reading about the uh, great convergence in Uluru. I was reading about how Aborigines have different um, relations to the New Age movement. I think this could be interestingly analogous to how Aborigines might interact with the occult underground as it exists in like urban Australia. And it said that like some Aboriginal people would be very much against it, against the New Age movement, and um, think it was very appropriative. Uh, others would pretty much just, they'd sort of, uh, like, get along with it, but sort of just, like, um, sort of exploit it in return, like, uh, sort of use it to pursue their own advantages, and others would buy into it, um, because there was lots of New Agey stuff that sort of used um, the images of Aboriginality for their own purposes there was a book called was it a mutant message down under where the story was this white american woman met this mysterious tribe of aborigines who uh, were super spiritual and in contact with like celestial beings and they passed their teachings on to her for whatever reason and that was a very popular new age book was this intended to be fiction or non-fiction it was intended to be non-fiction, but it was very clear. It was very clearly fiction. It was very clearly a exoticized, orientalized uh, vision of Aboriginal culture for the purposes of New Ageness. And I think that might be the, if like any interaction between the occult underground and like ab traditional Aboriginal culture, there'd be some who would just be like, if the like someone who holds to traditional um, Aboriginal beliefs and values, encountering an adept, like some would just be like, fuck this guy, he's insane. And others might be like, what is this? I'm interested in this. Um, especially with um, urban Aboriginal groups who might um, be moving in the same spheres as you'd find the occult underground. Something that I find uh, kind of interesting um, is how UA has never really drawn directly from um like native folklore too much because it's a tricky subject considering. exactly like especially in comparison to something like white wolf um and how like werewolf and shit is super heavily coached and all that um like the only thing i can think of that ua has like 
brought in from that type of thing is uh, there's that one scenario and one shots about um, investigating some town in northern uh, Washington state that just had like a sighting of some snake spirit. I think a big part of that is that UA codes strictly modern. Um, there are historical scenarios. There's the Ascension of the Magdalene. But the default assumption is... You're dealing with post-modern post instead of modern yeah. or pre-modern magic. This is why, why I bring up the, the whole New Age thing, because that is closer to the, the, the post-modern magic elements, like taking shit and reworking it. Um, the problem is it's tricky to write about this not being Aboriginal. Um, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's just like the it's hard to get that sort of knowledge to do it justice. Yeah, um, I think based on Thompson's earlier comment about different perspectives within that culture, um, that you really just write them the way you would anybody else, keeping in mind that the way that they are viewed culturally by others, um, that effect. And one of the strengths, I think, of writing a scenario for a tabletop RPG rather than, you know, just doing a short story or a novel or something is how you can much more easily represent the multitudes of an experience like that because there you have the element of the players making choices within that fiction. So it's a bit easier in some senses to give people the freedom to come to their own conclusion about things and act upon that. Yeah. Actually, something interesting that Thompson brought up in the uh, rehearsal episode was um, he was talking about a Christian cult, I think it was, that was operating in the Northern Territory. Yeah, it seems like a lot of the weirdness is clustered around Perth, right? Is Perth in the Northern Territory? I know Perth is like really isolated and on like the more northern coast of Australia. This is an area in Western Australia that's actually nowhere near Perth. It's way up. It's way up north. Um, it's like thousands of miles away from Perth. Yeah, but it's, so it's even more distant. I've got my own theories. Of course, on Perth. I'm sure you do, and I like to hear them. But there is this woman called Anna Mak Makanui Nui Makanui. I'm bad at saying. Uh, is that supposed to be an Aboriginal name? No, she is. Uh, from a Pacific island. I think she's Samoan. Okay. Uh, oh, so it's Polynesian then. Yeah, she's Polynesian. Um, she is a Pentecostal... Oh, Tongan. She's from Tonga. Um, she is a Pentecostal self... Not self-proclaimed, but proclaimed prophetess who arrived in the Aboriginal community of Wankutjunka in the Kimberley region of Western Australia in 2015. Uh, and she has baptised dozens of locals who were in the news because they set fire to sacred indigenous artifacts like um, certain sacred clothing and tools and things because she taught them that, that all that traditional culture is a kind of devil worship. Now, I, from what I've been reading, there has been some interesting um, infiltration of the area by Pentecostal preachers, not just from the not just from Tonga and the Pacific Islands, but also from Africa. And I think it's an interesting cultural development because they are coming with a an alternative to both traditional aboriginal culture and secular west like secular australian civilization um and because both of those have sort of problems because in secular australian society it's still quite racist it's quite difficult for aborigines to 
exists within Australian culture. And traditional culture is full of rules and um, it's quite conservative, especially because it has been um, suppressed for so long. And that could have sort of breeds a conservative bent to things. Um, and she comes in and she's like, no, you don't have to worry about either of that. You just need the love of Jesus. And also preachers from Africa come in and say the same thing. And because they're not white, um, they may be trusted more um, because they're like an out-of-context uh, element coming in. And they're having a lot of success in remote communities, which have been ignored um, by modern uh, secular society. And it's an interesting development. But of course, like uh, local Aboriginal leaders, leaders and politicians are like, they don't like it. They, uh, they criticize it, but there's not much they can do um, about it because, you know, it's people's choice, you know, but it's, it's interesting. I think that sort of uh, small scale religious power play fits very neatly into what UA tries to do. Yeah, definitely. Any other sorts of weirdness of note that? Well, we have a few cryptids. Interesting. Like, so what's the Aussie Bigfoot? Yowie. Yowie. Okay. So what's the Yowie's deal? It's a, it's uh, a massive small and wrapped in foil and they're made out of chocolate and they've got little toys inside of them. That's, that's, that's candy. That's, that's, that's chocolate. Don't you remember? Um, we had, when I was a little kid. I, re I remember these... the Yowie chocolates. Yes. Yeah. We had Yowie chocolates that were basically kinder surprise eggs. You know, the classics that pretty much everyone has is some sort of sea serpent and some sort of walking ape. So you got the Yowie for the second one there. And yep. since it's a marsupial, I assume the big difference here is that it doesn't lactate, right? And perhaps is it poisonous? It has a pouch. So they're like little Yowies there? I, in the traditional uh, idea of the Yowie, uh, actually not the traditional, but like the later, the 19th century vision of it, it was quite similar to Bigfoot. It was like a hominid. Um, I like the idea it's a marsupial. Um, it may have been um, a misinterpretation of an, like an Aboriginal spirit that ended up getting combined with Bigfoot ideas um, from Europeans. They have the law in the States too. I mean, Sasquatch is a Native American word. One more modern take on the cryptid is that it crops up every five or ten years or so uh, big wildcats in the outback, like panthers oh, yeah. and pumas and tigers. Um, people are constantly seeing those things and saying they suggest, suggesting that they exist. So something that's always kind of stuck me a bit is that UA will often bring up this sort of thing as something that one could include in your campaigns. But how would you actually go about including these sorts of cryptids in a campaign in like a significant way? What what would I would do? Because in America, there's the whole phantom kangaroo thing that's gone on for a while. I have not heard about this, and I'm in America. What? Occasionally, people like see kangaroos in places that they probably shouldn't. Sometimes they are escaped pet kangaroos and escaped zoo kangaroos, and sometimes they're just weird stories. With the phantom kangaroo is uh, a cryptid of sorts so if i was interpret i was bringing that into ua i would and i was running a game with australia i wouldn't do the phantom cat i'd do something like the phantom moose because having a moose seeing a moose in australia would be ridiculous and just the sort of thing you'd want to have just just to highlight the weirdness in a ua game i think oh that poor moose jesus it's too hard 
Um, the other thing is a lot of these creatures are supposedly um, the remnants of escaped or released animals from private zoos. Um, I know that that's the case with a similar sort of myth that's over in the UK, that a lot of them come from being released uh, when that was when exotic pets like that were made. Yeah, that's where all those rumors of crocodiles in the New York City sewers come from. Yeah. So what you could have is maybe not a big cat, but some other kind of unnatural creature that was being kept in some sort of containment for whatever reason that has then just been let out and thrived in the untapped environment. Out and deep in the wilderness, I would think that you guys would probably have something similar to what you have in the United States where there's a lot of disappearances out there, right? Oh, yeah. Like 38,000 people a year. Um, I Most of them are found. We've got something like 500, um, I believe they call it persistent disappearances where people haven't been found again. But yeah, 38,000 people a year. Most of them are found within a couple of days just because they didn't tell people where they were going or they got drunk, drunk and wandered off. But yeah, that's a big place. There was a string of serial killings in New South Wales in the early 90s where a bunch of backpackers got killed in the middle of nowhere. And that's something that has popped up. It does happen, like backpackers getting killed by in the middle of Australian nowhere because it, like especially in, like the 1980s, 1990s, there were lots of backpackers who came from the UK and particularly Japan and they'd end up really out in the middle of nowhere. I can't remember what movie it was. It might have been Priscilla Queen of the Desert, where like they always that in like every scene in the background there was just this Japanese guy walking by. And that was sort of highlighting just how many Japanese backpackers would end up really in the middle of nowhere. Um in the same way that um and sometimes troubles would happen in the same way that like tourists sometimes get in trouble in Death Valley in Australia because they don't realize how big of an area america is and the same thing happens with tourists in australia like i we we can travel across australia it'll be easy and it's not one thing with the brief disappearances there's an american myth called the skinwalker i believe you might know a bit more about that frank um i know that the other name that these creatures tend to be called, at least in uh, one Native American language, is the Wendigo. The Wendigo and the Skinwalker are quite different, though. Um, okay, they're from, they're different. You, you know this better than I do, I guess. Go ahead, Dorm. Because, yeah, the, the Skinwalker is from Navajo culture, uh, while the Wendigo is from further up north. Yeah, I can't remember. So it's only, it's specifically Navajo? The name, uh, yeah, the specific Navajo, but I think other tribes in the area have similar myths. Uh, I found a really great article um, last week in on the Indian Country Today website. It's like a, a Native American uh, news website. Um, and it was called Monster Face-Off, the Werewolf versus Indigenous Shapeshifters. And it's a, it's a whole article about how the werewolf kind of sucks and the shapeshifters are way more powerful and would win in any matchup. And I love the fact that it exists. They were like evil sorcerers who could transform. Yeah, the werewolf myth was like a curse. And while the skinwalkers were shape-shifting witches, um, and they were significantly more powerful because they could do it at will, and they didn't have to wait for the full moon and things like that. I like the idea of a cabal, um, including both a werewolf and a skinwalker. 
who constantly bicker with each other. That would be quite a fun dynamic. You haven't seen the werewolf stuff brought in with UA3 as much? Uh, Torm, could you remind me how werewolves actually work? Oh, I can't remember that. That was in, yeah, the second edition book. Okay, so the second edition take on werewolves was that it is a demonic um, possession. Specifically, that you get a kind of demon. Yep, specifically, you get a demon who, for lack of other options, um, has spent a lot of time possessing a specific animal. And over time, this isn't great for the shape of their soul or whatever it is that they're made out of. And it sort of shifts. So it's like the animal that they usually possess. No, this is often a wolf, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a wolf. Yeah, I think one of the examples they give are like birds and squirrels. Um, so in Australia, it could easily be a kangaroo or a koala or something. A horrifying koala lycanthrope would be a good Australian cryptid. Yeah, so when they possess a person, um, what they do is they reshape the person to the shape of the animal. And it's it's not a physical transformation, like there's no twisting of bones and rending of flesh. Um, it's just one second the universe thought they were a person. And the next second, there's a koala sitting in the cubicle, surrounded by a bunch of office clothes. And that's what the universe always retroactively thought they were. Until they go back. Yeah, at least until the possession ends, which is fine, unless you remember a person flying around by flapping their arms when they change back. Oh, interesting. So wait, um, during the transformation after the fact, does everyone remember you as... Just acting like that animal, but looking like yourself? Yeah, it works both ways. So when you transform into the animal, the universe remembers you as always having been that animal. And when you transform back, it's vice versa, um, which is usually fine unless you've done something that is incongruous with being a person like flying. Okay, but that's interesting for the um, the like um, animal period then, because then that means that people think of these animals as just people for the duration of the transformation. So you'll be in your cubicle, suddenly you're a snake, and everyone's like, oh yeah, that's, uh, that's Steve, he's a rattlesnake. Uh, hey Steve, have you gotten those uh, reports done yet? Yeah, I think that's actually probably more interesting than them turning around and being like, what the fuck is the snake doing in here? And just not remembering Steve. This reminds me because I'm thinking of like the guy becoming a koala and just being remembered like up a tree, just eating eucalyptus leaves. And that's the kind of thing that's less weird than flying, but still pretty weird. But that does remind me of a situation that my friend had um, in Australia. And this is going to sound racist, except for the fact that it was absolutely true. Uh, because in Australia, there are. Good start. Cart grows. You know, cart the. Um, the leaf that is chewed, it's a mild narcotic, which is popular in um, Somalia and and like Yemen and stuff. Um, it's a very mild narcotic. It's not illegal. It grows everywhere. Um, but my friend had some cart trees growing in his backyard. And he, he, like, on several occasions had to chase Somalians out of his backyard because they were in his trees collecting it. Um, 
because it's just a traditional thing that they chewed. And I thought it was hilarious because he, he was always so like, he was always feeling bad about chasing these guys out, but they were in his backyard and he's like, get out of here, guys. You saw it happen more than once? Yes, it happened more than once. I I had I chewed it a couple of times. I accidentally had it in my pocket when I went to Indonesia, and that could have been a big problem, but it wasn't. But I found it while I was in my hotel. I'm like, what's in my pocket? Oh, shit, I've got this very mild drug on me, and I brought it into Indonesia. I'm an idiot. Yeah, they will not uh, treat you too kindly if they catch you doing something like that. No, no. So as far as lycanthropy goes... Um... One thing that sticks out to me is that Australia has a bunch of very strange extinct megafauna. Um, things like the Diprotodon, which is like a giant van-sized wombat. Or um, we actually, there is a real historical antecedent to the drop bear called the uh, marsupial lion. So the idea of a demon that has been twisted into the shape of one of those creatures could make a basis for an interesting cryptid. That's a pretty solid hook, actually. Uh, a demon that is very old and was possessing animals that are now ex- had been extinct for you know thousands of years, but when it uh, possesses a human again, they're turning into this uh, extinct animal. So there's all these sightings of this long extinct megafauna running around a local area. And it turns out it's actually just a demon possessing someone. And probably a very old demon if it was possessing, like, because, like, uh, the Aborigines did coexist briefly with the megafauna. um, But then before, like, like in many other places in the world, they were wiped out by humans because they didn't know how to deal with humans. Uh, But there was, like, the carnivorous kangaroo and things like that. Any, any kind of demon that was possessed by that would become a horrifying creature and would explain some cryptid sightings for sure. Yeah, and also the reluctance of witnesses to um, retell their stories because they suddenly remember it the other way when it changes back. Um, to, to touch briefly on the drop bear idea, because the whole idea of the drop bear originally... Wait, are koala, was... is drop bear not just another word for koala? I was under that impression for years. Drop Bear was, I'm going to give away some secrets here, but Drop Bear was a lie that Australians would tell tourists. Uh, It was described as a carnivorous koala that would drop on you. Um, And it was was basically a tall tale that was used um, to talk to, like, very seriously warned tourists and backpackers and like when you're in the bush watch out for drop bears there was another one called the hoop snake which was described as a snake that grabs its own tail and like rolls like a like a wheel towards you and bites you i do like that australia just has so much hazardous fauna that you guys just come up with random bullshit and it sounds relatively plausible at least well, that, I think, would also probably apply to the Australian occult underground. So if you've got an adept, like Charger or Checker or whatever, coming from the US or the UK, coming to Australia and like starting to explore the Australian occult underground, they would probably encounter locals who would just lie through their teeth about things that don't exist just to like freak the foreigner out. I think that's, that would be a very common occurrence. And that might be some of the stories about Australia is occult underground might be just because Australians have said it and it's traveled back. And you could have that going the other way as well. Like 
a bunch of Australians that want to keep as many tourists out as possible, so they decide to breed actual drop bears. There's an objective. Yep. Save Australia Zoo by breeding drop bears. So I guess to shift in the uh, urban areas, one of the interesting things about Australia is compared to United States and the UK, you guys don't have as much of a history of hermetic occultism. Like the UK has the Golden Dawn. I, I disagree. We had all that stuff. It all came in in the 19th century. Um, okay, okay. Like, so like, it's not domestic, but it was definitely imported. Oh, absolutely. It was imported. All the weird secret societies from the UK came in in the 19th century. So the late 19th century Australian occult mainstream was full of like theosophists and things like that. Uh, one of the major radio stations in Sydney was founded by theosophists, um, 2GB. It's named after a an Italian occultist from the like 15th century, and now it's it's still a major um, radio station, but it's become very commercialized. But up until the 70s, they still had uh, not theosophy. What was it? Rosicrucians, maybe. So is this radio station like sort of a um, coast to coast AM type deal, or is it just like a rock radio station that happened to have been founded by? A bunch of occultist years in the past. I don't oh, think, it was. Yeah, it was. I don't think we've ever really had coast to coast radio stations. I think it's all been very regional. It has a lot of like right wing talk radio associated with it, but it's not as interesting as Alex Jones. It's it's more mundane. They, up until the 1970s, they still were broadcasting like um, segments on Theosophy. Um, it became completely commercialized, or has it? Like it could have. Yeah, just it been could have just gone underground until the. Uh, Second uh, wave of theosophy starts. Oh, there is a theosophist uh, by the name of Leadbeater, or Leadbetter, who uh, moved to Australia in the early 19th century. Um, and he proclaimed that Australia and New Zealand would be the home of a new subrace of humanity, a new Antipodean human type, which would be characterized by intuition and the powers of synthesis. But he believed that it would be important to purify child-rearing practices by abstinence from alcohol, meat, and tobacco, and to educate the next generation correctly in order to create this new sub-race. So perhaps this, the reason why Australians drink so much is because of a, a sleeper, uh, although the sleepers technically didn't exist at the time, but people deliberately making sure that this sub-race did not develop. Yeah, I guess beer is your guys' fluoride then. That could honestly explain why Australia is, in the macro sense, such a synthesized culture. It's just this natural result of you guys synthesizing between the UK and the US. I mean, it's not just a synthesis from the US and the UK, because if you look at the history of immigration in Australia, uh, we had the white Australia policy in the early 20th century. Yeah, I don't think they got rid of that that until the 1950s. They didn't, yeah. Yes, we, seems we, like you guys have a history of implementing very shitty policies and taking way too long to get rid of them. Yes, yeah. pretty much. Um, the white Australia policy was analogous to like policies in the U.S., especially in California, because again, it was like a, a response to Asian immigration. Uh, in Australia, especially in the early 20th century, there was a great fear of the fact that Australia had a relatively low population 
and it was so close to very highly populated Asian countries. And that sort of fear is still around, that fear of being absorbed into Asia, even though it makes economic sense. Um, there's that, there's a, a clinging to Europe and America, um, even though our largest trade partner is China. And that was like that fear of Asia drove the white Australia policy. And it was got rid of it got rid of it in like the 1950s. And we had a lot of immigration, especially from the Mediterranean in the 1960s. So in terms of the occult underground, you would have had traditions coming in from Greece, Italy, um, Lebanon at that time. And then later we got more Asian immigration. And so in terms of the occult underground, we would have got more things from Asia coming in and mixing up. And multiculturalism was a part of Australian culture or is in the more modern day, but there's also people who are pushing against it the same way people push against it in the US. So something else is some sort of group of druids that are uh, somewhere in the Australian... Uh... Yes, the New South Wales Ancient Order of Druids, because the Ancient Order of Druids was a 19th century like secret society sort of thing. Uh, it was a became a mutual aid society in the early 20th century. Um, so it was, um, they were providing each other with like the equivalent of health insurance and things like that, uh, mutual support. And then in 2011, it changed to Noble Oak Life Limited, which is a, a literal health insurance company, which I thought it was an interest, a literal life insurance company. So I was looking into these guys a bit. They had a very interesting ad campaign. I noticed. Yeah. They trade on their heritage yeah. quite a lot. Like we've been around for hundreds of years type thing. Yeah. Where they have like this very posh English nobleman shilling you insurance. But I did notice that none of these ads brought up their druidic history, which is unfortunate. Some of them do. Like I've read like um, some of their like history of Noble Oak um, PDF, which goes all the way back. It's like a description of the ancient druids of Europe and then going on to the 19th century and the history of the how it changed into a life insurance company. So they do bring it up, but I guess in their like mainstream ads, they don't bring it up as much because it's kind of weird, but it's interesting. And that is, I think it would be a good model for probably a good guy group if they did have some links to ancient Druidic tradition or more likely 19th century reinterpretations of ancient Druid tradition. Well, an idea that strikes me as kind of fun is that they still, they preserved those traditions, of course, using the front of their life insurance company, but to their most uh, trusted customers, they offer the gold plan, which is that your life is insured indefinitely. They grant you the secret to immortality, which all the people running this insurance company also have because they're actually like druids. They like to tell you that they're thousands of years old, but they're actually only a couple hundred years old. Exactly. Like within Anonamis, I think any group that tells you it's thousands of years old is probably hundreds of years old. And any group that says it's hundreds of years old is probably 10 years old at most. Any immortal that's older than like 18th century are people that are very good at keeping their heads down more than anything else. If I was going to bring the Noble Oak into an Anonami's game, um, I would have one of the immortal secretaries just working there. And he just this African dude who knows all about the Druids because he lived with the Druids because he's an immortal. And he's like the surprisingly knowledgeable guy that works there at the desk while all these really old white people sort of mingle around and they're like, they're kind of intimidated by his sheer amount of knowledge. 
but he's just quietly there doing the paperwork as the immortal secretaries and uh, wants to do. One other thing you could do with the um, change in public face is make it a sort of a dynasty type thing. So you've got a new generation who have put a new face on it, but you've got like grandpa who's living in the basement and he's an oak tree. And so you run it a little bit like uh, the TV show Dallas. Oh, so that's the actual immortality scheme. You get turned into literal trees. Yeah, or maybe the kids have decided they don't want that anymore, but they still want, you know, all the wealth and whatever else they've amassed over the years. So with that way, you could have this lineage that goes way back to, like, very old English history. Rather than dying, this family has been preserving themselves as oak trees thousands of years. Like, I'd imagine if you've been alive as an oak tree for... 4,000 years, you probably aren't very talkative after the first 500. Yeah, maybe the kids decides that sucks. Is this a millennia-long telephone game going on with Druidic Doctrine? Generally, I yeah. feel that if you become a tree, like, you end up becoming more tree-like as time goes on until you're just a tree. Um, so it's not a really great immortality plan because you just become a tree. And another fun one is that uh, after being here for so long, uh, they have stopped turning into oak trees and are now instead turning into eucalyptus. Nice. That could be a, like a cultural fight within the organization, like uh, maybe a new generation who wants to be like more in touch with the environment of Australia might be like, we should be turning into eucalyptus trees, while the traditionalists are like keeping to the oak. Or maybe they can't help it. And... That has sort of cut them off from the orthodoxy of their uh, Celtic origins because they don't have anything to lose. They've got no ties back to their old. Anything else of note going on around uh, more urban areas, the west coast of Australia? Well, I do have a theory about that. All right, give us your west coast of Australia theory, Ben. Okay, so prior to the... 1940s um the entire western half of the country was actually uninhabited uh, they tried but it was just too horrible and inhospitable and then world war ii happened and there was this re very real fear of japanese invasion so what the federal government did was they got together and they incorporated western australia as a company and this company went out there and built a fake Perth. They seeded a fake history. And basically, it's a big government psyop that just never wound down. Um, there's too much invested in it. There's too big a bureaucracy. This lie that has gone on for decades has become truth. There are generations that have grown up in the dirt lots surrounded by the inner facades of buildings that don't really exist. Perth is not real. What are you laying down here? Are you saying that Perth is, like, in sort of the typical UA fashion, something that didn't exist until enough people believed in it that it did start existing? Or is this... No. I'm saying it was deliberately constructed and then continued for entirely mundane reasons. Australia does have a history of just building cities for no reason, like Canberra. Uh, so I could believe it. Yeah. 
So you've got this decades-long Potemkin out in the middle of nowhere, because why else would you build something out there? Is it even a Potemkin at that point? Sure. I mean, none of the buildings are real. I... Okay. Okay. I thought you were saying it started as a Potemkin, and then just they were like, eh, there's no real reason to shut it down. That's... And let's just nope, turn it into a real much... city. But... There's too much industry involved in keeping up the facade for them to turn it into something real. As someone who was born near Perth, I could actually... This actually kind of makes sense to me, because historically, the Swan River had been surveyed by both the Dutch and the French uh, for a possible colony, and both countries decided it was a terrible place for a colony and just left it. And the official history is that a, the when the British explored the area, they thought that the rivers were a lot more lush than they actually were and so they just planted a place there that it was actually not a great place for a colony it was fine but it wasn't ideal so if it was sort of like a world war ii era potemkin that sort of made a fake history no one would know yeah if in the 19th century it was like the entry point for explorers into west australia um even in The Shadow Out of Time by H.P. Lovecraft, they the guy who goes out to the great race of Yith's library, he has to go through Perth. So you'd have to explain that. You'd also have to explain how in the early 19th century, Australia, West Australia attempted to secede from Australia. Oh, they did a good job of writing that history. No doubt. I won't contest that. So far enough that they revised... Obscure pulp stories from the period of referencing the town. What more compelling evidence could you ask for? H.P. Lovecraft didn't write The Shadow of Time at all. It was written by some bureaucrat. Well, apparently, according to the official history, when the initial talks of forming the Australian Federation were happening, um, New Zealand sent representatives. And if things had gone differently, it would have been quite easy for the colony at West Australia not to become part of Australia and New Zealand to have chosen to be part of Australia. But it's just not how our history went, our timeline went. You can definitely do some interesting things with that. Maybe that's where the whole idea of um, all the Australian other spaces comes from. It's not actually other spaces, just the Australian government has a habit of building settlements out of nothing. Perth has always been here. What if this is even an even deeper rabbit hole or even deeper wombat hole? Maybe if you just keep scratching at this, you find it's not just Perth. It's like every city except one. Maybe there was just one city that got colonized in Australia and everything else is just made up at a later date. And Eventually you just find the zipper that holds the dirt-covered tarp we know as Western Australia to the eastern landmass. Yep, and then... All that's left is like a bunch of convicts on a beach that are still there. It's like the Matrix beats Mad Max. That's as good a pitch as any, especially for a UA game. Could this be tied somehow to the foundational orgy of Sydney? What? I'm not familiar. Ah, okay. So when Sydney was first colonized, um, there was a there's a legend or a um, a very a possibly a, a apocryphal story that um, when the first convict women came ashore on the 6th of February 1788, um, it led to a massive orgy on the beach 
uh, fueled by rum, um, much to the disgust of the people in charge. It's a story that was based um, from one of the officers on the ship, and it, it was a, just one line in his diary, and people ran away with it, and it became sort of like a, a myth of the foundation of Sydney, to the extent that like even like at the Sydney Botanical Gardens, they had a, a little exhibit not an exhibit, but like a joke exhibit, and it was just some like tents that were shaking, and it was meant to reference the, the foundational orgy of Sydney. Um, maybe that's like, could it be linked to that somehow? Perhaps that's why Perth is in the real city at all. Yeah, maybe they need to be consecrated. Exactly. It needs to be consecrated in a large ritualistic sex act of some sort. Well, how about this? If you were playing a game in Perth as like occultists or like members of the occult underground who were slowly discovering that the history of Perth was hollow and you could even bring in the whole idea that all these years were fake and actually nothing happened in Australia. And like, for example, Perth, say it was settled in like the 19th century. Actually, it was just settled in like 1946 or 1943 or whatever. And like if the, the guys were slowly falling away, if you were in like an occult uh, cabal, you could slowly experience whatever made Perth real was starting to fade away. So, like, streets are disappearing and, like, buildings are empty inside and you have to figure out how Perth is going to fade away into, like, a small town or nothingness. And the only way to get it to stay in reality is to have a foundational orgy. That would be pretty cool. Um, I'd like to see the Western Australian Suppression Bureau as bit players in that the government department that's responsible for keeping the truth from leaking out. I, I always hear about Australia is this nation founded by prison inmates, essentially. How much truth is there to that? Quite a, quite a bit. We sort of put it on a bit, but yes. When did it like really transition from like a penal colony to uh, an actual state? When did it do what now? There were areas that were said to be settled by like free settlers, non-convicts. Um, the mystical Perth was one. I think Adelaide was also mostly settled by free settlers. Um, Sydney was mostly convicts at the start. Um, there was a big division between um, free settlers and convicts, especially in early Australian politics. Um, there's something called the squatocracy, who are people who just occupied land and sort of um, had delusions of aristocracy, um, which is an interesting part. Are there any castles out there in the uh, in the outback? Uh, interestingly, yes. There's one about 30 kilometers away from me called Cryle Castle. It was beat, built by a man called Keith Ryle. Um, it is a tourist trap where... It's basically a medieval theme park. Was it that originally, or was it... Yes, he built it for that purpose. Darn, I was hoping that one of these squatocrats that you mentioned it just decided to build his own fiefdom somewhere in the middle of the outback and do as he will. Well, I mean, that sort of harkens back to the micronations idea. True, that is true. Yeah, a lot of those guys style themselves as royalty. So what were, like, the actual early years of rule by prisoners like? Well, it wasn't administered by prisoners. Um, okay. A lot okay. of it were, like, British military 
um, because it was a penal colony. Um, it was basically a prison, but far away. Okay, so it wasn't just exiling people in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. People from, like, the peerage would get governorships and whatnot. Um, it was basically a way to get rid of your rivals um, in some cases. They would send them to administrate a colony that was very far away. We were actually a penal colony right up until the 1860s, I think is the case. Um, We weren't federated as a country until 1901, I think. As an official country, we're just over 100 years old. And interestingly, if it wasn't for the American Revolution, that might never have happened because before... The American Revolution, the best place to send convicts was Virginia and Georgia and those areas. And then after they became independent, the British were like, okay, we have to choose somewhere else. I guess it's Australia. Oh, so convicts. they killed a brother. Kind of. Fucked up sense. There is a great story of this guy, this convict um, from the 19th century called William Buckley, who was transported to Australia for stupid crimes and he ran off into the bush and he he lived with the Aboriginals for a few years. And the reason he was accepted by the Aborigines was the fact that he was basically wandering out in the middle of nowhere and he came across a spear sticking out of like a grave and he picked it up and he wandered off with it and these Aborigines came across him and he he was holding the spear of a, a guy who had died, an Aboriginal dude who had died. And this guy, William Buckley, was really tall. And the guy who died was really tall. And the Aboriginal saw him and they saw his white skin and they saw he was tall. And they just assumed he was the ghost of the guy who died. <laughs> <laughs> and so he just he lived, he lived with them. And it was, it was amazing. He lived with them for years, learning their language and stuff. And that actually happened a lot. Like people ran off into the middle of nowhere um, because it sucks being in a penal colony. But running off into the Australian outback was also very dangerous. And so people did live with the Aborigines because they knew what they were doing. You actually had that a lot with um, uh, United States history too and the Native Americans. Living as a laboring farmer kind of sucked. So you would have a lot of people that would escape and join Native American tribes. It was, it was a better lifestyle. Yeah, because it was a better way to live. Well, with that, uh, let's take a caller, and we'll be back in a sec here, listeners. Hey, guys, just want to check. Last time when you said dairy farm, was that the signal, or was it just something that came up in context? I mean, I'm I'm ready, you know, I'm always ready, but uh, um, we really don't want to pull the trigger on the necessity. It's actually happening. Talk to, talk to you soon. G'day, you Sheilas and Drongos. We're back. Now, I want to talk about what the existing canonical groups might be up to in Australia. Uh, we talked about mag attacks before and how it is existed in Australia, but probably quite limited. Um, TNI um, probably has a presence, or at least had a presence. TNI operated in Australia in the way that TNI probably operated internationally as part of Alex Abel's global business empire, but was probably somewhat separate and maybe have been like I could imagine TNI having like an equivalent of an office probably through a shell company 
maybe in Sydney or Melbourne or both, and being maybe a place where TNI operatives were sent if they got in trouble or needed to get a dodge. Yeah, um, they got cut off during the Whisper War and not having any directives coming down from the top. They just went along business as usual. So now that things have sort of resolved there and the new TNI has come in to try to bring them to heel, they're like, who the hell are you people? What what the hell sort of organization is this now? And so there's probably a bit of conflict there, um, whether they're the same organization still or whether they're two different ones. What would a TNI that has been isolated from the larger organization for, you know, going on 20 years, how would Australia's um, unique underground shape them? I think that there would be a fair amount of infiltration of public institutions. Like you'd have a lot of police officers that would also work for them. The way we dealt with um, business influence in politics was essentially by legitimizing it. Do you guys try to crack down on that harder? Do you guys not have a figure like the lobbyist? I know that there's a certain degree of, like, especially influence from coal. Yes, coal is... On Australian government. Yes, it's huge. But uh, is, it, is, is it is like officially recognized as it is in the US? Not really. Um, when the media has a reason to care about it, like when they get in trouble, a lot of recent uh, kerfuffle about that has been driven specifically by crackdowns on the media. They're basically reporting purely in their own interest. In the past, that's not really been the case because as far as Australia is concerned, they are the establishment. Interesting. So just corruption is a bit more of a acknowledged and widespread reality of the Australian system. I mean, the United States certainly has that too, but we don't really think of it as being done on the low-level bureaucratic realm, more like actually directly influencing congressmen and shit. Yeah, I think it would be fair to say that Australia has a high level of uh, institutional corruption, but not the sort of corruption where you'll be shaken down at the airport by a customs official for a bribe. So one example I can bring up with that is um, they pushed out a new card on the welfare system, which is basically only able to be used... uh, certain locations the ostensible purpose is to help people with substance abuse and gambling problems from spending the money that they get from the government on those things instead of to support themselves and their families Um, this company is administered by somebody close to the current ruling party so yeah it's really just a way of uh, privatizing public funds a lot of that sort of thing happens in australian politics well, kind of a bit of Freud for me is the number of people because of coronavirus being put out of work and a lot of people discovering for the first time just how bad the Australian welfare system is and how it's been deliberately set up to be as complicated and annoying as possible. Like it's ostensibly a welfare system to help people who are out of work, but it's, it's just terribly run deliberately as part of like an idea that by doing it this way, it encourages people to get jobs because it's just really shit to try to get anything from the welfare state. And a lot of people who are out of work for the first time because of coronavirus are discovering that. And they're like, why is it run this way? Because before there was a 
the whole idea of the dole bludger, which is like the, a similar idea as the whole welfare queen thing in the US, the media especially would be like, these people, they just don't want to work sort of thing. Was it as racially coded as it is in the US? Not really. No. Um, a little bit, but not to nowhere near the same extent as the US. With all this uh, institutional corruption going on, uh, how exactly would uh, he and I be taking advantage of that? There is an interesting group I discovered in my research that was under investigation back in 2011 called the Brotherhood. It was formed in, 20, in 2003 by a former police inspector, and it was a circulation list of people, including senior police, politicians, public servants, and former police, who would meet up every four to six weeks in inner city restaurants to discuss things. And they were under investigation for potential um, like unlawful information trading, um, exchanging criminal record checks and things like that. Um, they were, the number of people that were under investigation included, I love this list because it sounds so Ananamis. It includes a former Victorian police officer with alleged links to organized crime, a former Australian wheat board executive accused of involvement in the Iraq kickback scandal, and the manager of a tabletop dancing club regulated by the police. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds, that sounds like a, a shitty unknown armies like a cult ish group so did these guys actually call themselves the brotherhood or is that a label the media put on them they that's a, a label the media put on them but they also called themselves that but they also had another name which is even worse um called mogi m-o-g-i which stood stood for men of good ilk oh god this sounds like, like a gentleman's club or something but it's actually just a bunch of corrupt cops Yep, corrupt cops and politicians meeting in, like, restaurants to discuss their nefarious plans. And I found a bunch of articles from 2011, and then nothing after that. And I'm like, hmm, what happened? I like this as, like, a sort of what, another example of something that was brought up before of just things that outwardly seem sinister and occult, but when you examine them further, they're just very mundanely sinister. Yeah, yeah, I like that sort of thing. That, but you can you can easily use that in an unknown armies game. The mundanely sinister is a good thing to rub up against the occult underground. Yeah, you don't need magical powers to be dangerous. No, absolutely not. So far as other groups, porn is in sort of an interesting state in Australia, right? And I figure that would probably have some uh, influence and significance to any followers of the Naked Goddess. There was an interesting thing related to porn when Australia was trying or they had some um, regulations on obscenity, which stipulated they were going against porn, particularly of women with small breasts, because it was believed to be similar to children. But then women with small breasts were like, what the fuck are you talking about? We're adults. It's a weird way to try to Back down on pedophilia? Yeah, it's a weird way to look at it because that's like very specific. Is that law it, still around? I don't think that ever went through. One thing that actually came up when the same thing was being discussed is that they were trying to ban pornography that depicted female ejaculation under the reasoning that it was urine. <laughs> okay. Um, see, now this... I'm guessing that you have some sort of faction in the 
Australian government that is specifically trying to fight against the cult of the naked goddess by weakening the archetype. Well, I mean, the idea with uh, banning pornography that uh, depicted female ejaculation was the idea that it was uh, what's called golden shower which would have made it obscene material. Okay, so Australia has a history then of trying to deal with skeevy pornography in the most ignorant ways possible, essentially? Yeah, I mean, we have a very censorious reputation as far as things like video games, books, films, pornography. That, like, dessert? I haven't heard anything about games and books being censored. I just know that they're often way more expensive than they should be. Uh, we did not have an R18 classification for video games until it would have been less than 10 years ago now. And um, there are still laws on the books. Um, for example, I think it's American Psycho has to be sold in uh, nondescript packaging. So you need to, to, if you're buying American Psycho, you need to get it in like a unlabeled brown paper bag. Yeah, it's, um, I don't, it's never really been enforced in recent years, but there was an incident a couple of years back where a bookstore got in trouble because somebody complained. Wow. Or what do you think uh, Auto Corpulentus would be up to in Australia, if anything? I'm not sure because Auto Corpulentus is relatively limited to like texas and there is and the middle east and the middle east yes so, um it could be you could see some i don't know because it, it does it originates from the u.s south it is a very um, american so, sort of uh cult i think you'd have a hard time exporting that yeah um i mean don't you guys have like a i know cattle is uh raising is kind of a thing there Oh, yeah. I mean, as much as it is anywhere else, I think, but... Exceptionalism is really a different beast over here. So then what would the Australian spin on something like Ordo Corpulentus be? I don't know. It's... I don't, I don't really see anything that, like... like how that... does your guys' exceptionalism manifest? I think it would be mostly sort of imported. Um, we actually have one politician in north queensland called bob catter tom know who i'm talking about oh yes yeah who sort of really puts on an americanized image like he's very big on cowboy hats having stuffed animals on his walls and uh guns and all this sort of thing and uh the stuffed animals thing that's not an american thing as far as i know well i mean like animal heads on the walls. oh you mean like uh you mean like you mean like trophies yeah okay i think i meant like teddy bears no, sorry. Uh, taxidermied animals. Um, he's very much about pushing that image for himself um, as a way of distinguishing himself as a man of the North and Queensland people. So perhaps then a spin on Ordo Corpulentus for Australia would be a group that is trying to change the uh, stratosphere to Americanize Australia in some way. Yeah. Or you could have somebody trying to hijack that image um, to sort of give an identity to rural groups that feel put upon because they don't receive the same attention as their urbanized cousins that uh, sort of control all the legislatures. Interesting, interesting. Now I'm imagining like someone like Bobcat, like someone who is 
linked to politics and uh, maybe agricultural industry who goes to the US and somehow ends up friendly with uh, someone in Auto Corpulentus and maybe invited to a great feast and trying to bring it back and like set it up, trying to set up his own Auto Corpulentus in Australia, but it kind of being a bit weird and ad hoc. Uh, that could be fun uh, as a like a antagonist group and try to shut them down before it even starts. So yeah, they have a lot of money, but not really any infrastructure they've set up yet. So you're on a bit more of an even ground with them as a cabal. One thing that um, sort of interests me in that dynamic is the relationship between the US corpulentus and the Australian corpulentus would be a bit like um, the relationship between the Italian and American mafias. Interesting. So yeah, you have uh, the latest doctrine coming in from Dallas and fuck i was thinking of this in terms of like religion not mafia fuck that's my foot in the mat for uh today's episode uh listeners uh the mafia is secretly a vatican plot wait that was supposed to be a secret that was actually like a pretty big problem when you first started having uh, immigrating to america from italy like a lot of the push against italians was justified on we don't want no stinking papists influencing our democracy Actually, that's an interesting thing to, to, um, to differentiate Australian history and culture from America is we didn't have that as much like anti-Catholic sentiment. There was some, of course, but um, because early settlers in Australia were as, as much Irish as English and there was lots of Catholics who came in, while in American immigration history, there was an initial wave of British settlers and then Irish settlers generally came later in American history. Yeah, so it's sort of the interesting thing from what you guys have described about Australian, like, uh, immigration. It's a bit more evenly spread. I mean, it probably skews towards the UK and America, whereas, you know, United States, um, for most of its history, it definitely skewed so that most of the um, willing immigrants were coming from Europe. Yeah, I mean, Australia in its history has been a far more secular nation. Um, you had a lot of people who were nominally Christian. So you guys said that there's not so much of a history of the sovereign citizen movement in Australia, so you wouldn't be so much having the Order of St. Germain running around. I could see an analog. We have, like, weird militia-type groups, but not to the extent of the US. Yeah, well, I mean, Scuttlebutt is that uh, old mother apocalypse is hanging out somewhere in Melbourne. I mean, that would actually be an interesting way to have bring in like True Order of St. Germain people going to Australia, being unhappy with a lack of a Second Amendment, but being drawn towards old mother apocalypse and setting... Actually, a, yeah. a, a micro-nation would be actually a really interesting idea. In our small nation in the middle of nowhere, uh, we do have a Second Amendment in in fact, the Second Amendment is the only amendment of our Constitution. Yeah, I mean, there are still firearms in Australia, but it's nowhere near to the Second Amendment. I mean, I figure they're probably more common in the outback, and it's just sort of the same dynamic you have with the United States of, you know, when you're in the middle of nowhere, it takes a lot longer for cops to arrive, so you have a lot more people armed when they're worrying about something like self-defense. Yeah, um, legally, you're only supposed to have firearms for uh, 
hunting and recreational purposes. I myself shot for about 15 years. Yeah. And I figure it's sort of a thing of in the more rural areas, they don't care as much. Yeah, we don't really have an enshrined right to self-defense with a firearm in any way. Uh, if you do something like that, you're probably going to get into a fair amount of trouble, but there's leeway in extreme circumstances. Um, it's all very regulated. Um, there are state firearms registries. You're supposed to allow yourself to be inspected by the police basically at will. But then we also still do have things like illegal firearms. I mean, organized crime can get a hold of them. They're just a lot more expensive than in the US. Like it's oh, but if it, you're a micro nation, you don't need to worry about all, any of that, right? Well, I, you do because you're still existing within the greater. No, you don't. Once you've declared yourself as a sovereign nation, then you are no longer subject to the laws of the nation encircling you. That's how it works, right? Well, hopefully. I mean, importation might be a bit of a problem. Find another space where guns grow on trees. Um. Any sleeper weirdness going around in the area? What I think is um, the sleeper presence in Australia is a bit of a beat up. It's a beat up pretty much anywhere nowadays. Yeah, I think what they do is uh, someone might come down here and pretend there's a bunch of problems that they're dealing with. And really, they're just kicking back on the beach. As far as connections to the uh, centralized sleeper organization went back when that was a thing. But... Um, yeah, it's pretty quiet. Like, I think the Australian occult underground would be reasonably self-regulating when it comes to that sort of thing. I do like the idea, uh, because in Hush Hush, they kind of dismiss Australia as mystically barren. And of the groups of the main sections of the sleepers described in Hush Hush, you've got, like, the, the Germans, the British, the Portuguese, and the Chinese. And so technically at the time, you t probably the British would have more interest in Australia, but they seem not to have paid much attention. I would like, it would be interesting if you had the sleepers in Australia post-Whisper War as being mostly coming from China. Um, and because that kind of ties into um, recent concerns people have with um, particularly Chinese government uh, and Chinese elite buying up properties. And there's been lots of questions about just how much impact they have over Australian politics. Uh, and you could, in a non-racist way, you could bring that in as the sleepers um, because they're the, what are they? The Brothers of Harmonious Repose is the, the Chinese section. Um, and that would be, because I can imagine the British not being that interested in Australia, probably because there's still bleeding from what happened in the Whisper War um, and the Brothers of Harmonious Repose sort of coming in, but also coming in with a different... Uh, maybe they're trying to police, like, occult stuff that is... Maybe, for example, um, historically, until 1997, uh, because Hong Kong was a British colony, I could see a lot of, like, uh, occult underground stuff going on there, and it's slowly being brung to heal by the Brothers of Harmonious Repose after the handover, and then maybe these groups leaving um, and going to other countries like Malaysia and uh, Singapore and maybe Australia, and then the Brothers of Harmonious Repose coming in to try to track them down, and that being a sort of like a background to the Australian occult underground that these sleepers are coming in, but they've got, I don't know, it could be interesting. I mean, another idea is that the reputation that Australia is super mystically barren could be a 
constructed one and it's just that the sleepers did such a good job in the years past that it got that reputation but with the fracturing in the organization since the whisper war there's been a lot of stuff that's popped up because they haven't been able to have such a stranglehold on the australian underground so it's the wild west exactly a cult um one other thing that comes to mind is the idea that Maybe Australia being so barren and far away from everything else. Maybe the sleepers used it as long-term storage, a place to get rid of the problems that they couldn't really deal with. So maybe out in the desert or even close to urban centers, you've got things buried. Actually, uh, when did Britain first start uh, sending prisoners to Australia? Uh, 1778 was the first fleet, I think, or it might have been 1787. Well, I was going to say that if you have some some prisoners coming from the UK to Australia, then there could very easily be a few chargers among them. Chargers tend to not do very well with authority. So whether this is a case of sort of a witch trial or something more mundane, and they just happen to grab the guy that knows how to turn gold into lead, hey... Uh, you still have a few chargers running around in early colonial Australia. And that could be a very interesting setting for a, an, an army's campaign as well. Yeah, in the uh, before episode where we didn't get the recording, uh, Thompson was talking about cats in the walls as an early colonial superstition. Yes. Uh, could you elaborate on that, Torm? Uh, well, this was uh, something that had not been recorded in any sort of official documentation, but what they discovered when they uh, were like excavating or finding like old heritage buildings in Australia, they kept finding dead cats in the walls and boots and weird stuff. And they eventually worked out it was connected with some very old British uh, superstitions uh, that by placing these like certain items in the walls, it would protect the house from outside evil influences. Like this has also been found in the US um in early uh, colonial buildings and things but it turned up it was it became a it kind of it kind of created a stir in australia because there was just no records of this superstition at all because it was something that was um sort of kept secret because it's it's old sort of pagan beliefs that had survived up until the 19th century as something that people believed in but they weren't going to advertise it and so that would have been like the equivalent of the occult underground of the time would have been using that sort of magic. I think it's called a witch bottle. Um, I think that's the term for it. Yeah, I just kind of liked that because I like the idea of a colonial Australian uh, UA character who is the cat man. Like he has a cart that he goes around full of cats that are all obviously dead. There is actually, I watched an interesting documentary about, um, I think, I can't remember what island it is, but it was an island off the coast of Australia where they have a problem with feral cats because feral cats are a big problem in Australia um, for killing off native wildlife, native marsupials. And there was there was this island where there was this guy, he was a famous cat hunter. He, so he just goes out and kills feral cats. And they had, a, I remember on the documentary, they showed his house and it was just filled with like cat skins and stuff. As far as any other groups, Flex Echo could very easily tie into that uh, radio dish we talked about earlier out in the middle of the outback. Yeah, and Pine Gap as well, because those are two different locations. 
one of the things that I remember being brought up about Flex Echo was the idea that uh, Nomon had seeded basically a storage version of itself out of Pine Gap just in case anything happened. And that that had yeah, woken yeah, up. Yeah, sort of a backup. Yeah, as, and that had woken up, but was stymied by the fact that Australia has such notoriously shitty internet. With the large amount of corruption and uh, U.S. influence on Australia, Nomon could very easily have sort of holdouts among members of local Australia government. Most of the members of Flex Echo in Australia could be small-time government employees. Yeah, um, they probably wouldn't even know anything about Flex Echo. Yeah. The stuff that Nomon asks you to do, especially on low levels, is benign enough. Yeah, I could very easily see sort of an impromptu cell structure getting set up. Your boss tells you to fill out these surveys every so often, and you're just like, okay, these are kind of weird, but whatever. Yeah, like it's masked by the idea of a Kafka-esque bureaucracy, and people just put the bizarreness of the requests down to, oh, that's just government bureaucracy. I know that, for example, like the United States has legislation outlawing IQ tests among employers. Is that something that's present in Australia as well? Uh, uh, no, we have aptitude testing. There you go. Nomon disguises all that stuff as an aptitude test. Yeah. I mean, you could absolutely do that. Even on a commercial basis, that sort of thing is widespread. You've got a lot of companies that contract for that sort of thing. In my vision of no one's like tests that he gives out, they're always really ridiculous, like pop culture tests. And I like the idea of like a civil servant getting a message that he assumes is from the federal government, and it's just like filling out like a like a uh, which like member a, of Game of Thrones are you? Yes. What house are you? I'm House Baratheon. I don't know why Canberra wants this, but they do. <laughs> far as ideas for new organizations in Australia, uh, Torm, you had something involving cane toads, I remember? Yes, uh, the cane toad. Now, um, what did what do you know about the cane toad, Frank? I, I, I think you get high on them, like you do uh, many kinda. other sorts of toads. You can. They'll mostly just make you very sick. Okay, then what's their significance? Well, okay, so uh, cane toads were introduced into Australia to get rid of pests in sugar canes after they were successfully introduced to Puerto Rico for the same purpose. The problem is that the pests in Australia were different from pests in Puerto Rico, and the pests in Australia just flew away, and the cane toads spread throughout the Australian ecosystem very quickly and very widely. Um, the problem with cane toads is they're ridiculously poisonous. Um, even the tadpoles are poisonous. Um, and they've caused massive problems, especially to Australian predatory lizards. We've got some big lizards, but whenever they eat a cane toad, they just die. Um, and it's caused a lot of problems with our native wildlife because they're ridiculously poisonous and they're quite prodigious. I know that some Australian animals have adapted and figured out how to rip cane toads apart and eat the delicious organs without eating the poison. But that's like a relatively new development. I heard that magpies and crows had learned to flip them onto their backs so they could peck at their stomachs instead of the poison glands on the back. Oh, good yeah. for them. I mean, that's, that's sort of evolution in action. Like, there would have been a lot of dead magpies that didn't figure, that did the wrong thing. And then some mag the magpies that figured out how to flip them over are the ones that survived. Uh, but then again, magpies, like birds like that are pretty smart. So maybe they've, it's learned behavior. 
But I do know that you can use them to get high. They were used by, as an entheogen by the Olmecs. Entheogen is like a, a substance which is ingested by shamans to induce um, hallucinatory spiritual states. They were fairly important for Olmec civilization and other um, Native American cultures. In Peru, they were used um, for to produce those the famous poison blow darts. So they have that element to them. So they've got like a spiritual side um, from the Olmec culture. And I do know that other cane toads, um, the other other toads similar to cane toads, are used in the U.S. by some people to lick the cane toads and get high off them. And you can do that with cane toads, but it's more dangerous because they're ridiculously poisonous. But I could easily see some kind of Olmec-themed, new-agey, get-high-off-cane-toads cult developing, possibly in Queensland, um, and existing as a kind of, probably with one foot in the occult underground and one foot in the occult mainstream. What if it's not even new-agey? What if... To escape the collapse of their civilization, Olmec priests escaped on boats to Australia sometime in the ancient past, and they actually engineered this invasive species from the get-go so that they'd have a supply of their sacred animal to use in their rituals. Um, if I were to use this in a game, one thing um, that came up when I was reading about this was that I don't think there have been any recorded human deaths from cane toad poison in Australian history. So if a bunch of people started dropping dead, that would draw attention. But it just has a very mundane explanation, and it's cane toads? Well, more the fact that this particular group is using them, and perhaps some other people have gotten the same idea, but they don't know how to do it safely. This seems like a cult that would recruit a lot out of bored teenagers, because teenagers will get high off anything if you give them the chance. Yeah. Or you've got bored teenagers who yeah. hear about it and decide to mimic. Yeah, it could be a totally distributed belief system where you have these people that are gaining these doctrines independently by getting high off the cane toads. Yeah, and then you've got the actual Olmecs who they like learned a few scraps from who are like, stop killing yourselves, you're drawing too much attention. I think it would be interesting having the, the idea of the Olmecs getting in boats and going to Australia because that ties into some conspiracy theories or like um, pseudo-archaeology really regarding t uh, ancient Egyptians coming to Australia, the Romans coming to Australia and groups like that. Groups that you wouldn't expect to come to Australia, but it would be interesting to have this idea of Olmecs somehow getting into Australia and setting up a small colony and then disappearing into history. But They've been pulling the strings behind the scenes this entire time. Yeah, the Olmec deep state. Uh, I, think you, I think we may have our episode title here. You could even go further than that. You've got something that to the street looks like a suburban normal house, and then you go inside and it's just empty except for this whole neck head that's sitting where the living room would be. So like the giant head in the early seasons of The Simpsons that they have in the basement. Yeah, except there's nothing else in the house. It's just the facade of a suburban home as a shell around an Olmec head. Yeah, and Maybe that's where they go. Maybe it's just a thing. I'm seeing an Australian sort of blue line campaign where they're in this empty house with just an Olmec head in it and a couple of dead teenagers with cane toads in their hands. That's as good a hook as any. Nice. There is a rumor I would like to discuss. Um, 
have you ever heard of a concept called goon? You mean gooning? Not gooning. I think Thompson is talking about wine in a bag. Yes, uh, wine in a box, uh, wine in a bag is very popular. Okay, that's what you mean, like box wine. Yes, box wine. Yeah, if you take it out of the box, it's actually inside like a... Okay, okay, I, don't I got know, you. It's made out of mylar? I don't know, some sort of yeah. aluminium. Yeah, I got what you mean. Uh, so I haven't heard the term goon used for box wine before, but sure. So box wine or goon is very important um, in Australian culture because it's cheap, um, especially like uni- university students. Um, I remember like maybe 10 years ago or so, they put um, an extra tax or an extra fee on top of the of any mixed drinks that you'd buy because it was trying to discourage kids from drinking sweet um, alcoholic beverages, so that became more expensive. Um, it didn't work. It didn't work. Of course it didn't work. But Goon is a pretty good way to get drunk cheaply compared to beer or mixed drinks or anything because it's what like $12 for four liters and you get really drunk. And you can do fun things with the bags like um, hang them up on like a, rotis- like a rotary clothesline and play Goon of Fortune where everyone stands in a circle around this uh, rotary clothesline and spins it around and the bag goes round and round and whoever it, la- whoever it lands on has to drink and you continue like that. It's kind of ritualistic when you think about it, but it's just a way to get drunk. This sounds like a very important tradition to your guys' culture. Yeah, it could absolutely find its way into gutter magic um, and probably already has. The goon bag is also very useful um, after drinking because once it's empty, you can fill it with air and use it as a pillow. If it's using gutter magic, I'm imagining goon of fortune divination of various sorts. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Now, the rumor or the weird thing I want to talk about in terms of goon is the fact that Almost every box of goon has a label on it saying may contain fish or egg products, and no one knows why. Well, I mean, the explanation that they will give you is the places that it is manufactured are also used for manufacturing things. Well, that sounds like bullshit. Yeah. What I think is um, the animal that they milk it from has strands of DNA from those creatures in it. All right, nice. Tom, what's your take? Well. Both of those things could be linked to religious background, um, fish um, linked to Jesus and eggs linked to Easter. So it could also be somehow, and wine is also religious. Um, so it could be this kind of uh, Cecilene cult thing. Like, for example, goon gives you a massive hangover because uh, it contains, what is it, sulfites or some shit? Um, oh, yeah, it's got terrible adulterants. Maybe some of those adulterants are magic suppressant chemicals that are used by the Cecilines to keep magic under control. And maybe why the sleepers don't have much interest in Australia is because Goon keeps the magic at bay. Or, and hear me out here, Christ faked his own death and fled to Australia. Instead of the typical take you hear where he went to, like, the Himalayas to, like, learn from Buddhists and shit. Nah, he just got to Australia somehow after a while. So you want to set the Da Vinci Code in Australia? I'm just picturing Jesus sitting on, like, a sofa with, like, a can of uh, VP in his hand with flip-flops and, like, a singlet on. And he, he, he fled to Australia, and now he's chilling with the Olmecs. Australian Jesus, I can imagine it. 
It just looks like regular Jesus, but looks like a hippie. <laughs> yeah, regular Jesus, but like a bogan. For I am the truth, mate. Well, uh, with that, uh, I think we're going to take a caller here, listeners. Uh, we'll be back to close out the episode with a discussion of the uh, 1970s Australian fantasy crime thriller type thing, uh, Harlequin. Um, hello. Uh, I have been contacted by beings with minds immeasurably superior to our own. They contacted me while I was in an altered dream state. They send a message, a warning to the people of Earth. This pandemic, this disease, it is a psychokinetic probe sent to our reality by a force unknown with the intention of weakening and atrophying the psionic capabilities of the human mind to prepare it for colonization. Please stay safe. All right, you blokes, we're back um, to talk about the 1980 movie, Harlequin. Was it 1980? It was, yes, 1980, which is basically still the 70s. It feels 70s. If, it's because yeah. 1980 still feels 70s, of course, because yeah. it's just 1980. Yeah. So we were kind of struggling to find an Australian movie that kind of hits the sort of unknown army's notes, and Harlequin was pretty much the best thing we could find. Yeah, in terms of something that is linked with the occult and magic stuff, magic nonsense, Harlequin seemed to be the best fit. There are other films that I might recommend for people who want to get a handle on like how to portray Australian culture in a weird sort of occult adjacent way. Um, like the, I would recommend a movie called He Died with a Falafel in His Hand, which is a was based on a book about um, Australian sharehouse life in the 1990s and how weird it is. Um, all these sort of like what is what's the word for it? These people who don't really fit into society, all living together in a weird sharehouse environment, and like people coming in and out, and just weird situations happening. And it's a good it's a good film for portraying a sort of setting which is very UA relevant. Have you seen that, Ben? Um, I've seen parts of it, but not the whole thing. Um. The movie that I would suggest would be Two Hands, which is a sort of a hapless crime comedy drama thing from the late 90s. The Coen Brothers type uh, deal? Uh, not quite. It's been a long time since I've actually seen it, but the thing that makes it stick out most UA-wise is that the main character, played by Heath Ledger's dead brother, acts as his guardian angel and sort of uh, talks to the audience throughout the film. Harlequin, so the first thing that you should know, listeners, is that this is a adaptation of the story of Grigory Rasputin. Somewhat. It's not as much as I was initially led to believe. It's a similar setup. Like, the broad notes are based off Rasputin, sort of historical myths surrounding him. Like, you know, Rasputin very probably never did fuck the Empress. It was just a rumor born by political enemies. 
unlike in this movie where a similar sort of situation is happening. Yeah, that's a pretty fair assessment. So the setup is that um, this senator's child has leukemia during said child's birthday party. A very talented clown shows up and ends up establishing a bit of rapport with the child. And then it turns out that this clown is actually some sort of magician and faith healer that is able to heal the child. And then this guy whose name is Gregory Wolf inserts himself into the lives of this politician and his family. And then it's sort of a kind of standard political thriller from there, but with more magic. And then the movie ends, as the story of Rasputin does, with a bunch of loyalists to this politician having to kill this man repeatedly. It takes a couple times for it to stick before dumping his body in a river. But is he really dead? Yeah. Has he just transferred his consciousness? Yeah, to the kid uh, who the last shot of the movie is like this sting, but just shows this cu- this kid with his face done up like you know, like a clown Harlequin makeup. No, no, no! It's isn't it the um, the stain on the floor? Well, no, because... like there's those like little like oh, it shows yeah. the stain too, but like there's those little triangles beneath his eyes. Yeah, the eye shutter. There's a some weird details in this movie, like the fact that they're obviously trying to Americanize everything, but failing sometimes. So the uh, movie takes place in this weird ad hoc uh, mix between Australia and America. Yeah, they never specify where it's set, and everybody's got different accents. Well, some of the people were deliberately meant to be American, um, specifically that uh, the political guy, the um, what's the word from a handler type guy that the senator always the, deals um, with. He's Doc ostensibly... Whelan. Yes, I think he's ostensibly meant to be American, and some of the security guards are ostensibly meant to be American, I think, but it's I never made clear. I could tell that they dubbed over some of the lines with more American accents at a later date. Which Which just adds to the surrealness of it. Yeah. And then uh, Grigori, amongst all this, is a very obviously British man. Who apparently, in original versions of the script, was going to be played by David Bowie, but they couldn't make that happen. It would have been pretty great with David Bowie in this yeah. role, actually. The other thing that I read was um, Doc Whelan was originally supposed to be played by Orson Welles, but uh, they couldn't afford him. Yeah, this seems like there's, there's a lot of things in this movie that are what could have been, but far as what's going on with the UA, you know, there's enough there. Like, this guy, they make it ambiguous a bit at first. Like, there's this thing of, like, oh, maybe he's a spy slash hypnotist slash magician and all this is just all this just sleight of hand but then by the end of the movie he's shooting lightning out of his mouth yeah um that whole scene where he does a bunch of obnoxiously magical things and is like do you see sounds like the sort of thing that an adept would do like are you impressed yet and that's sort of the interesting thing that i got out of this movie um which is a little bit of the unnatural goes a long way in Unknown Armies, if that's the yes. way you want to spin it. Like, the unnatural, unnatural is only one of five different shot gauges that are in this game. Yeah. You can very easily do a lot 
with a much more mundane story of intrigue with just introducing a slight hint of a natural. And this movie is a pretty good template for that, I think. And like the, the guy screams adept and that he's just, I mean, I think most adepts don't have his level of charisma and that's why you don't have more sort of crossover between the occult underground and regular organized crime. Yeah, but I still think that scene and the complete lack of subtlety is a very adept yeah. type of behavior. Like he just sprays out a bunch of magic and it's like, do you believe me now? That and the bit where he's like holding the kid off the face of a cliff. Yeah. And just... I love I love that scene for the security guard standing next to the car, like looking visibly concerned but not sure what to do with his hands yeah. and then when he's hanging the kid off the security guard's like oh no but what is he gonna do what can he even do yeah he just sticks his hand inside his coat like he's gonna pull out a gun but what's he gonna do shoot him while he's standing on the cliff hedge and the kid's talking about like yes i understand what death is now and i understand that i need to be thinking about death all the time so it will never surprise me do you see <laughs> I also like the bullshit explanation they come up to explain away his clear magic about, like, he put, what is it, hallucinogens? Or was like, yeah, like, like he, in- he was putting, like, proteins and he was injecting the kid with, no, he was, like, putting proteins in the kid's cake. Yeah, steroids. Yeah, but the kid had one bite of this cake and they used it yeah. as, like, ah, it was the cake that he had one bite of. Um, and I'm like, this is, sounds like the. Uh, keeping this tiger asleep nonsense that makes yeah. sense and like you know like they're like oh it's just hypnotism when like at points he's like levitating pianos in front of crowds yeah like no no he's just uh, really good at being a hypnotist and an illusionist haven't you ever seen david blaine this is like the whole like venus and swamp gas explanation for ufos which is probably true but sounds nonsensical which is a good model for like sleeper or blue line explanations for crazy shit and that would be kind of fun too is like sort of having a sleeper influence in the government but not in the traditional way of clandestine agency it's more like okay there's a couple like assistants of congressmen and shit that are just among the sleepers that are just in place there to make sure that no wizards come in and try to influence u.s politics yeah one of the things that i really liked um in that big scene is when Gregory is explaining to Rast that he's had the wool pull over his eyes by magicians and he's being manipulated from all sides and Gregory's just trying to show him the truth. I like the idea, in UA terms, of a mundane political candidate who's surrounded by wizards who are all sort of trying to push him into ascendancy but also manipulate him for their own ends and he just ends up this hapless, tattered wreck. That could be good for a more competitive style campaign. Uh, something kind of, though it's a one-shot, something similar to uh, Jailbreak from Yeah, one-shots. like everybody wants the same thing. They just want different shades of it. I'm just imagining this politician like having to deal with, like even if it was the canonical groups, like he's got TNI leaning on him and he's got the Cessalines leaning on him and he's got Affinites leaning on him and they're all just saying... No, no, no. Those other guys' magic is bullshit, but this magic is real. And I think that's one of the things that can be learned from this movie is that you can very easily have a very good UA game with essentially no unnatural powers on even the character's part. I mean, I think the game sort of, when you start with mostly ponies, it 
sort of leans towards they'll gradually pick up a few things on their own like at least a couple rituals right over the course of the events of the campaign but at least starting out you can have still have a very good campaign with everyone starting at one unnatural notch and at first everything seems like completely mundane intrigue that would be a good way to start yeah like having well the whole idea of like having a, a entire cabal cabal of like it's not even Almost. a cabal, it's just, hey, we're all, like, similar insiders there, kind of helping each other out. Or we're all just gang members. Yeah. That would be really, yeah, that could be really fun, and you could explore just the learning, discovery, the, un- the occult underground, but not necessarily being absorbed by it and becoming an adept or an avatar, just being like, oh, God. Yeah, a lot of the, a lot of the low-level um, UA2 Cabal suggestions will like that. You know, Unknown Armies gives a lot of mechanical support for just creating interesting characters with fleshed out motivations just through normal character building, regardless of all the unnatural and magical stuff. Yeah. And the other thing is by keeping the heavy magic out of the player's hands, something like an adept is a major either boon or thorn in their side someone to court or be terrified of so it's basically the dragon sitting on its hoard of gold except in this case the gold is like used tissues that it's stolen out of bins Uh, yeah if everyone's mundane one entropomancer is an insane an insane problem to be dealing with and like i don't i'm not sure how much you could do this with like the high scale politics that this represent that the movie presents an example of, because I, I think there's like enough logically speaking there'd be like enough other groups jockeying for control over you know even state governorship, but like a small town where the mayor's kind of corrupt and it's just a bunch of uh, adepts leaning on him to try to influence local politics in some way. Yeah, or a guy that's just starting out and the unnatural players figure, oh, we'll get in on the ground floor of this guy's career. And the other side of this would be Washington, D.C. would be a great place to run a UA game. Sure. Like, it's got some intense, weird occult um, symbology in the design of Washington, D.C. And the same can be said about Canberra, as well, there's lots of conspiracy theories about how Canberra was designed along Masonic lines. Well, Canberra was originally built because um, there was a big argument between Sydney and Melbourne over which one will get to be the capital of Australia. And the compromise was, all right, we're going to demarcate a section of land that's, I don't know, like, what is it, 200, 2,000 kilometers across? They demarcated this area as the Australian capital territory that was about halfway between them and built a city called Canberra on it. So the Australian Capital Territory is actually this section of land. It's like a little circle inside of New South Wales, um, which is a little bit like how uh, the District of Columbia. So the architect of Canberra was a Chicago architect named Walter Burley Griffin, who had links to theosophy and also uh, alleged links to Freemasonry. And his designs for the layout of Canberra have been accused of uh, using uh, 
Freemason linked sacred geometry to create portals into other worlds, allowing divas and various other entities to more easily oh, well, cross into perfect. the physical plane. Yes. That's that's perfect. That name is just a great adept name. Exactly. And I would even think because this one might be an advantage of running like a political game in Australia versus the uh, the US, because in the US, especially like a Washington DC game would be cool, but it would kind of necessarily be more high level unless you were talking about Washington DC city government, which also would be interesting because of the dichotomy there with the federal government. But Canberra being a capital city, but of a smaller country and having that similar like Masonic background in terms of the architecture but it being smaller and relatively lower stakes than Washington, D.C., it would be fun to mix with occult underground shenanigans because it is kind of major. It's still a major country and all that, but not quite as hugely high level as Washington, D.C. Yeah, no, that does sound very interesting. Um, mixing that in with all this other stuff um, that we've brought up, like Druidic uh, insurance agencies, cats in the walls. Like you, they end up looking into like the Australian Capitol building and just the walls are absolutely filled with cats. Well, actually, it could be the opposite because Canberra was built after that whole period. So the cats in the walls was a thing that is, exists in heritage buildings in Melbourne and Sydney. But because Canberra was a relatively newer city, no cats in the walls, no protection from the evil influences. Uh, which are apparently portals to other worlds. So. That ties in the other space thing. Canberra itself is the Australian capital territory, one of our two territories, which is not a state. And that means it has some weird laws regarding fireworks that you can't get fireworks elsewhere. But for, I mean, maybe, maybe not anymore, but you could get them in Canberra because it's a territory, not a state. And yeah. there's all kinds of weird legal things that are special about the Australian capital territory. Uh, things you can do that you can't do in the states next next to it yeah i think um you've also got like cannabis has been decriminalized there all right well i guess to tie everything together so the ideal setup i think for an australia ua campaign then is you have all these uh small time politicians and bureaucrats and the australian capital jockeying for influence over local politicians dealing with um pressure from the Olmecs. Nomon bureaucrats from the Perth conspiracy, from Druidic insurance agents, and from, I guess, you throw the cult of the naked goddess in there somewhere to explain why Australia's strange, strange porn legislature keeps happening. I mean, that's, that's quite enough, I think, for a, yeah. you know, a good game. That's a, lot of, that's a lot of moving parts, and I think it, it works. But none of them are too overbearing, I don't think could bring in any elements of the canonical groups that you want like but you don't have to like it's a good middle ground is like if you want to have tni in there or a variation on tni you can easily include them or you could easily exclude them like any of the canonical groups that exist in the us you could say there's a weird australian scion of them or you can say no they don't exist here so it gives that freedom i think one of the most compelling things about um, running a ua game in australia is that UA really benefits from the smaller scale. Even in American games, they usually run it in like a rural town or a small part of a larger city. Yeah, uh, running UA in an entire city 
uh, especially if it's not a city that you know very well, can be daunting. So having the more uh, small-scale politics and history of an Australian city is a boon in that way. Yeah, it's it benefits far more from the personal level. Well, I think with that, we're going to let you go here, listeners. Ben, where can our listeners find you? Oh, uh, for the past 12 months or so, I've been working on an Unknown Armies blog called Oddities and Endlings. Um, it is on a brief break right now. I'm about to start that back up and finish up the last 35 entries. Um, hopefully, when I've completed that, I'll be able to rewrite the bits that aren't so great and turn it into a book. So that's on Blogspot. Um, hopefully, Frank and Thompson will be able to stick it in the show notes. All right. Well, thank you very much for coming on, Ben. Uh, listeners, if you would like to be on the show, you can give us a call at one eight three 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 fm rdio Leave us a message, and you'll be included in the next episode. Thanks for sticking around, listeners. See you next time. philosopher has been through the same type of crap and they've written about it and when you find that poem or that piece of writing and you think bloody hell this bastard's just summed it all up it's kind of company